The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good evening, everyone. Glad that you have been able to come out again and join us this evening for our evening worship service. Let's turn our Bibles to 2 Kings 23, please. 2 Kings and 23. I hope you'll find this an encouraging, mostly encouraging portion of Scripture among many that we've read that have been a little more on the depressing side in the history of Israel. Remember, all these things were written for our example that we might not do evil things like they did. We don't count ourselves to be superior to these dear folks in any measure. Uh, Just they were hardened in their their hearts and minds and so on against God. But Josiah came into power and he was tender to the things of God. And now we read about some of his activity after we finish the last one in chapter 22. Here we're in chapter 23. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah And with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart and with all His soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, Baal, for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it in the, at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw it, threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. No surprise there. They were hard-hearted, hard-headed. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars which were on the roof the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made 
in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and at the, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down. And he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these words. Then he said, What gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds that he had done in Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Very encouraging as I indicated earlier that a man has turned wholeheartedly to the Lord. Obviously you can see from the listing of all of the problems that he had to clean up and we're not even sure that he got all of them, but he probably got the major ones. The nation of Israel was fully given over to idolatry, just just wholeheartedly going after the idols. I'm sure that there was a minority of people, a remnant, who were so happy to see finally somebody on our side in charge and taking care of business, but there were a lot of people who were probably quite displeased with what he was doing as well. Verse 26, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of His great wrath with which His anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked Him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from My sight as I have removed Israel. Okay, then I'm going to remove the southern kingdom as I have removed the northern kingdom. And will cast off this city Jerusalem which I have chosen and the house of which I said My name shall be there. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. 
Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done, all except his dad, whom he didn't follow or listen to evidently. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim the son of Josiah king in the place of his father Josiah and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Well, mostly good chapter. <laughs> Didn't end on a good note, but that's how it was. So, unless the Scripture records for us. Yes, sir. Yes, it does mean that. Um, and you might remember that when we read some of those other good kings, so let me back up. The question is, if some of those high places went all the way back to Solomon, then does that mean that those places remained during the reign of good kings between Solomon and Josiah, like Hezekiah? The answer is yes. In fact, you might remember we read specifically a couple of times where it says that, you know, Hezekiah or so-and-so tore down some of these high places and did this and that. But some of the high places remained. It said explicitly that. So, uh, it doesn't give us a, you know exhaustive listing or a map with pushpins on which ones stayed and which ones didn't. But it is true that some of those did hang around and they did not extirpate uh, false religion from Israel, all those good kings. And I th- it's interesting... Doesn't it say that uh, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart? So it does seem to elevate Josiah just a little bit above some of those other good kings uh, in suggesting that he was very zealous for the God of his fathers. Not to cut out the other ones, or or cut them down rather, but uh, there is some note in the kings that they left some of those high places, unfortunately. Somebody else have a comment or question? Okay. All right. If not, then John 13, please. We're still working our way through John 13. And I have a little bit more left. We'll see how far we get this evening with this. Uh, John 13. Now, let me just quickly review. The first 17 verses are Jesus washing the disciples' feet, giving them an example of humble service. They needed to learn that, by the way, because A, uh, Judas was in their midst and he didn't know anything about humble service. And B, the uh, people, uh, the rest of the disciples who were there, uh, were arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. 
just right around this time period. So uh, it's a rather embarrassing situation that the Lord is doing stuff like this to them and they're sitting there arguing about who's the greatest. So that is the first section. Then verses 18 to 30 speak about the betrayer. And we looked at that, I believe, last uh, Lord's Day evening about the Lord's table. We must be genuine in our faith. We saw that Judas was a real fraud and was not genuine in his faith. But we need to take care that we are genuine in our faith. Then this last... Yes, a question, I guess. Okay, Judas section. So 18 to 30. Yes. Yes, so the question is about Satan's entering into Judas. And let's just find that verse now. Oh, I'm sorry, that was 27 you said? Yeah, verse 27. So the question has to do with Judas being indwelt or possessed by Satan. Evidently, Judas had made certain plans already before this point and kind of started to set in motion this diabolical plan, hmm, diabolical, uh, to, uh, yeah, diabolos, to uh, turn Jesus over to the high priest uh, for a sum of, you know, money. And so the question is, why did Satan enter him now? Judas didn't have Satan to blame before uh, for the things that he did and set this up. So why does he enter him now? I suggested when we uh, touched this part of the study that I think that Satan was making sure that the job got completed, got done, that uh, Judas would not chicken out, which is kind of what you're suggesting. Maybe he uh, had to make sure that that, uh, it was completed and the plan didn't change on on Judas' part. Um, This was a critical point in Satan's battle against the Son. And so, to make sure that it was completed, he entered into Judas and induced him to complete what he had started to do already. But as I said, Judas had himself to blame. He did not need Satan's indwelling to cause him to begin to do this plan. Um he is the son of perdition. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the lip, off of his lips, we hear those words, the son of perdition is lost. Um, and so, that's kind of my first cut at an answer for you. Make sure the job gets done right. Quote, right, you know, wrong. But make sure it gets done. Make sure Judas doesn't back out. Uh, you know, push him out into the darkness and have him do his, finish his dirty deed. 
I mean, he's this is he's he's got to have a level of you could say boldness and courage to do evil that would just be beyond what you could think. He's going to go out, get the the soldiers, get the priests, get the officers. He's going to lead them to the place where he knows Jesus. He knows Jesus is going to be, and he's going to go up to Jesus and kiss him and introduce him to the authorities. That is that is bold sin, and uh, we can see that Satan is is uh, at work. Although I would not, in all that we've said so far, we've suggested that Satan didn't have a role to play before he entered into Judas, but I suspect that he did. In other words, he could have uh, influenced Judas, Satan could have influenced Judas to begin that plan from the beginning. Now, the question arose in the midst of what Christie was asking about, does Satan know the thoughts of Judas? I don't know fully the answer to that question. I do know that Satan is not omni omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. But he does, if nothing else, if nothing more than this, this might be just enough. He knows sinful human nature. I mean, he's an expert. And he has tested people time and again. He knows that Judas is greedy for money. He's seen that already. That's been public knowledge, or at least knowledge rather among the disciples and Jesus Himself. So, does He have to know Judas's thoughts? I don't think so. But let me contradict myself. Uh, you see that in any cases of demon possession, that the, the demon who, for example, talks to Jesus is self-aware and is somehow interfacing with the consciousness of the person that he's indwelling so that he can like speak through him. The person seems to be thinking the thoughts that the demons are suggesting and speaking through him. So, this is, a, this is an area where I don't really know what else to add to that. It's a scary kind of thing. We often have said, do not tread anywhere close to demonic things because you don't know what can happen to you. Um, you know, I don't know that it's all like uh, you know the the horror flicks uh, you know to say uh, or show, but it is um, it, it's 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 otherworldly. You don't want to mess with that world. You want to stay in this world. Stay with the Lord. And Judas had, uh, you know, begun to play footsie with that world of the, de- of the devil and uh, he got drug into it uh, full, full speed. So, <clears throat> the fact remains, 27 says, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him and, and then it says in verse 30, having received the bread and obviously Satan entering him, he went out immediately and it was night. So then we know the rest of the stories I've already summarized. So um, I have to think about it some more. Best I can do for now. Yeah, John. So once Satan entered him, had he completely lost control? Judas, that is. 
so the question is, once Satan has entered into Judas, has Judas lost control? It appears to me that the ability to, to subject one's body to discipline uh, or one's mind is probably greatly, if not entirely, lost in demon possession. The kinds of things that are done by demon-possessed people, as we see in the Gospels, are beyond the pale of any kind of civil society. Um, but again, that it kind of depends on the participation of the person with this. I, I, I can't say that it's. I can't say that the person is totally unwilling. So they have some involvement in the demonic activity inside the person. I know this is a wonderful topic to be talking about, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it may be. I mean, you see the example of the man at Gadara who went around with no clothes and couldn't be uh, chained even. Just entirely, uh, I don't know what the word is. There's a word I'm trying to dredge up in my mind, but it's, it's he's just out of control. Um, he certainly seemed to be greatly relieved when he was released from that oppression and he could you know, get into some clothing and be in his right mind and uh, try to be with Jesus um, to go with him where he was traveling. So <clears throat> it may be, uh, there may be gradations, John, of that, of that, that some demons, like in this case, just took him over and just make sure the job gets done. Other times, co-working with the evil spirit of the person the depraved, sinful nature, encouraging them in the way that uh, they want to, they want the person to go. I say they. I'm thinking of Legion, that demon that was not one demon, but but many. So, also a good question. Part of the difficulty of this is if you look at um, a book like uh, Alex Kanya's book in the library. Uh, Demons, a biblically based approach, which I read many years ago. Excellent book on the subject. Um, he points out that you don't see a lot of, well, you don't really see any detail on how to diagnose demon possession, how it works, <clears throat> you know, how it connects to physical and mental illness. We don't have instructions on casting out demons in the epistles, um, <clears throat> knowing what is and what isn't. We just, we're a bit in the dark. God has not been pleased to give us that information. <clears throat> Despite the fact that there are churches that really focus on this kind of thing, um, but we do not because the Scriptures have not given us that. We do need to pray though when people are uh, acting out of, out of line. Um, and I'm, I think that there are probably some cases that modern medicine diagnoses as mental illness which are probably beyond uh, merely physical explanations. So, all right, I've already said more than I know, so I better stop now. <laughs> all right. Okay, so then we looked at uh, Jesus leaving the disciples. He says, I'm going. Where I'm going, you cannot come right now, but you have to be patient. You have to wait. You can't be with me immediately. And Peter, of course, says, you know, where are you going? Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Well, that didn't work out, as we know. 
And so we encouraged ourselves with these words last time that we, I hope, have a longing for the return of Jesus Christ. We want to see Him. We, we have that kind of dual feeling about that. I mean, there's a little fear and trepidation, I'm sure, right? Because you're going to face Him as Lord, as Sovereign, as Judge at the Bema Seat. But you also have that anticipation that, boy, I'm going to be released from the sin nature entirely. The world is going to be a better place. The Millennial Kingdom. Eternity will come then after that. And I can't wait. So those two feelings are juxtaposed in the believer's life. But we have to wait for Him to return. If we don't have that longing for His return, if we're not like John saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, then there's something wrong in our, in our being. Something wrong in our, in our thinking. And we need to really stop and examine ourselves if that is the case. You know, we don't have a care in the world about Jesus coming back, then we're too wrapped up in the world uh, for our own good and we need to turn away from that. We need to change our thinking entirely. And so please consider that carefully this evening as an application from our past message. Then, uh, the fourth section of the uh, Chapter is verses 34 and 35. Just two verses. This is a short section. But the two verses speak about loving one another. The primary attribute of believers. Loving one another is the primary attribute of believers. Verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for Another. So instead of concerning ourselves like Peter did with, Lord, I'm going to go with you now. No, you can't. Or instead of concerning ourselves with, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right hand and at your left hand? Or being with Christ at the moment, instead of concerning ourselves with that, the Lord gives us the proper point of focus. What is that point of focus? Love one another. While we await the Lord's appearance, we must love one another. The disciples' job is to do that. That's your job. Sometimes it may be hard work. Love one another. Work at it. Okay. If Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, I might add, do the work of loving one another. Love your husband, love your wife, love your children, love your parents, love your church, your your fellow church members, and do so in a real way. Not in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love one another. Now, he says, a new commandment I give to you. What does he mean, a new commandment? I mean, loving one another seems to be kind of an old commandment. In fact, the play on words or the idea of old to new is used in 2nd and 3rd John, where he talks about the old commandment, the old one, no, the new one. Look at Leviticus 19, verse 18. You can't get any older really than this. Leviticus 19:18 is at least as far as biblical history is concerned. Biblical text. The Bible says in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Listen to that. 
you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. If you bear a grudge, you are in sin. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, go to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. Not quite the very end, but close to the end. Zechariah 8, verse 17. Zechariah says, Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. So, think not evil in your heart toward your neighbor. But Jesus gives in almost a, really a more specific format. It's not just love your neighbor. It's love one another. Notice verse 34. That you love one another. So this is specifically talking about in the church, loving your neighbor is a general command for all of humanity. It's always required. But especially your fellow believers in Christ. Do good to the household. Do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. Love your brothers. Love your sisters in Christ. And then he adds this as well. Not only we could say it's leveled up from loving your neighbor to loving one another, but it's leveled up yet again by his saying, as I have loved you. That's that's heavy. <laughs> as I have loved you. So, two ways in which he strengthens or elevates the power of this command to love our neighbors, to love our Christian neighbors in particular, and to love them as Christ has loved us. We, saw, we see the same in Ephesians chapter 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So, Christians are to have a particular affection toward one another, a particular sacrificial approach and mindset toward one another. When that is not present, then there is something seriously wrong. If you're thinking evil toward a person, like Zechariah says, or the opposite of Leviticus 19.18, or you think up all the permutations about how that person is bad toward you, or um, you know, you're thinking of vengeance or how you're going to get back at that person or whatever, then you're not loving that brother or sister. Christians are to exercise that love in a way that is comparable. Certainly not exactly the same because we'll never reach that, but comparable to how Christ has loved us. Consider, for example, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Or 1 John 3.16. Remember that verse? Great, great words. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 16. <clears throat> By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for our Brethren, you know, he, we love him because he first loved us. We're very familiar with that verse, but here's how it works out. He laid down his life for us, and we also ought to do the same 
for our brothers. And then uh, back in John chapter 15, verse number 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So, Jesus did. So, the proof of discipleship is in the fruit of discipleship. And that fruit is all the different manifestations of love that one has for another in the church. That fruit is what will show to the other disciples and also to those that are not yet disciples. Or those that are just not disciples, period. Maybe never will become disciples. They should see that we love one another. That we care for one another. That we're genuinely followers of the real Jesus. That we stick together in helping each other. That we have an ability to forgive one another. We understand forgiveness. And that out of love that we will cover a multitude of sins and forgive the sins of our brothers and sisters. We have the ability to overlook faults and so forth. All of that to combine to demonstrate the person to whom we are connected. Now, one little note. The love that we are sharing amongst ourselves as believers in the church is not to ultimately aggrandize ourselves, is it? It is to exalt the one that we follow. Our love for one another points people to Jesus Christ, the model, the originator of that kind of love. So our love should be a model that beautifully adorns the Gospel of Christ to make it attractive to the outsider. If God is drawing someone to Himself, that person should be able to see when they come into contact with an assembly of believers, while those people are friendly people, those are loving people, they are people that care about one another, he should be or she should be able to see what he's getting into when he comes to the church. He's getting into a community of people who love one another. Not who isolate themselves from one another or not that just merely put up with one another or tolerate one another, but that really care for one another And so, I just end this little segment about the primary attribute of believers as love with the question for me and for you. How about it? How's our love? How's our love stack up to this comparison? As I have loved you, Jesus said, how do we love one another? Let that sink into your heart as we conclude with the last segment. We've talked about Judas who was a false professor. He was the betrayer. He was the one that taught us that we have to be genuine in our faith. But even if we are genuine in our faith, we can still, like Peter did, we can still fail from time to time. And so in verses 37 and 38... We see that. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, we can sympathize with Peter 
in his desire to follow Christ, even to the point of death. He was a loyal follower, although he was a bit too confident in his strength. But his inability to handle the difficulty of the situation was not the only reason that he could not follow Christ at this point. Uh, What do I mean by that? So, he was going to face a difficult time in going with Christ and even becoming a co-conspirator with Him and being crucified with Him and, and all of that. That would be extremely difficult. But also, Jesus had said two times, you cannot follow Me now. That should settle the whole matter. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek Me. And as, as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. That's verse 33. And then verse uh, 36 says, uh, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Okay. Close mouth, engage brain. Jesus just told me, I cannot follow him now, but I will follow him later. Should I ask him if I can follow him now? No. Don't do it. <laughs> Keep mouth zipped. <laughs> okay. Think before speak. But we sympathize with Peter's zeal still. But, you know, when, when God says it, that's it. I mean, it's kind of like Moses. You know, he, God calls him at the burning bush. You're going to go and you're going to, you know, release, get my people released from Egypt. And Moses hems and haws about it. And I can't do that. And God says, okay, we'll send Aaron with you. He can help you out. And Moses hems and haws about it and all that. And God says, look, I've said, I'm done, finished, okay? Don't say any more. And that happened a couple of times in, in the Old Testament. We have to get in mind the obedient mindset that when God says something, that settles it. And we best obey it, okay? To adapt a phrase. You know, we say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, as God's, as we learned from Pastor Sachs years ago, God said it, that settles it, and now I believe it because it's all settled. And we should obey it as a result. So, he can't. But then also, we remember that Jesus later on in John 21 tells Peter that there's a particular plan for Peter's life. And so, Peter cannot go with him now because that would short-circuit the plan that Jesus has for Peter. I mean, think. In the Logos, in the divine, in the second person of the triune God, in the person of Christ... He knows that Peter has to go through this denial and restoration. He knows that Peter has to lead the disciples in the upper room. He knows that Peter has to preach to thousands of people in Acts chapter 2 just two months in the future. He knows that Peter has to lead a missionary uh, tour into Caesarea, Philippi, and to reach uh, the Gentiles with Cornelius and the others and to convince the church to follow him in the truth that God has granted repentance and life to the Gentiles. And he knows that Peter has to be put in jail after James is killed, released by an angel out of jail, and go about and preach. And whoever knows where Peter went after the book of Acts, we don't know. But Rome, some say Babylon, where did he go? Traveling, ministering the Gospel among Jews and Gentiles perhaps as well. Jesus knew all of that. You can't come with me now. Jesus prophesied that Peter would not die at this time 
but that he would deny Christ. He would deny Him. That, that would be a deep cut, wouldn't it? That would hurt to the core. If he was sensitive enough to listen to what the Lord is saying, not only would Peter deny the Lord three times, but he would do it within the space of just the next few hours. The sin nature of Peter would overtake him and he would be unable to conquer its desire for personal safety and comfort and he would deny Christ. Now listen, folks, if Peter can fail, we can fail. Peter was with the Lord for years. He was a believer. In fact, heaven had revealed to Peter in Matthew 16.16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He was a powerful preacher of the Word later on. You know, We might chalk up his failure to say, well, the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. As so many have suggested in the past. Like as if there were no ministry of the Spirit until the day of Pentecost. But I don't think it's that easy. The Spirit of God had to be working in Peter's life. Simply had to be for him to be able to recognize Jesus for who He was and to want to follow Christ, to know Him as the Son of God. Those desires that Peter had were not merely fleshly desires. They were informed by the, the Holy Spirit. Now it's true, John 7 tells us that the Spirit had not yet come. In some new and fresh way, new powerful way, John 7, 37-39, Jesus cried in, the, in that great feast, remember, come unto Me. And, and uh, you know, He spoke to them of rivers of living water, which was speaking of the Spirit of God living in a person and bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit was absent entirely from the life of believers in the Old Testament or, or early New Testament era. I don't think so at all. In fact, Job, not, not Job, <laughs> Proverbs 1.23, Turn you at my reproof, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you. That's an Old Testament promise. Um, So, we have this problem that Peter is going to deny the Lord. If he can fail, we can fail. The point is that the sin nature inside of each one of us, like it was in Peter, the sin nature is so insidious so dark, so sinful, so twisted, so deceptive that it can work the same mischief in us that it worked in Peter. Now, you might ask the same question that we we were asked a few moments ago about Satan. Well, so what happened with Peter here? Did Satan get a hold of him? Well, the devil's not omnipresent, thankfully. And uh, he just left the building with Judas. So you can't blame Satan for what Peter has said here. The devil did play some role, however, if you look back in Luke. Look back in Luke 22. Now, fasten your seatbelts, okay? You might learn something here that might get your attention. Luke 22, 31. In the same context here where the disciples had been arguing about greatness and uh, you have the, the whole upper room discourse thing, you have Gethsemane, all the same context here. Jesus is predicting Peter's denial. 
And Luke 22.31 says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So, Satan is not entirely absent from this situation. Satan has desired to sift. He's asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, as I understand it, and I feel like I want to go back and double check this, like triple, quadruple check this. The text says, Satan has asked for all of you, not just you, Peter, you plural, all of you, to sift you. And Peter, when you get straightened out, you help your brothers get straightened out. That's, to me, quite powerful. Satan wanted to sift all of them. And I don't think, my friends, that we can rest on our laurels and say, well, I'm just going to fly under Satan's radar. I hope, I kind of hope to do that. You know what I mean? Like, you won't notice me. We too can be a target of his sifting operation. And he might do that to you, to your family members, your children, your parents. Satan desires to sift you all as wheat. And... Well, kind of like he did with Job, right? I'll show, I'll show you, God, about Job. He just likes you because you bless him. So let me, let me sift him for a while through my little sifting machine and see what happens to him. How do we guard against failure in that case? We have to stay close to Christ. Spiritually speaking, we must maintain our relationship with Him. We must be in the Word We must be in prayer. We must be in fellowship with other believers. Getting away for a while from sound doctrine, from sound fellowship, you may observe yourself slipping into sin. Satan is a siftin. Okay? And he can work a similar mischief in you as he did with Peter. And your sin nature can concur and you can get into big time trouble. So, we must love one another. That's the primary attribute of believers. And we must be on guard that we not, like Peter, fail in our relationship with the Lord. So, Christ's example of humble service, the betrayer, take heed, love one another, wait for Christ's return. Don't try to uh, you know, get there ahead of time. Wait till he comes. And these are the lessons we learned from John chapter 13. There's not like one, as far as I can tell, I'm not clever enough to put it all under one, you know, clever heading. These are the subject, subjects that uh, John can, uh, records from the Upper Room Discourse in John 13. And thus concludes our reading of John 13 together as we see all that's going on. This, this, was, uh, this was high stakes, this was high tension. Uh, high stress, not only for Jesus, but also for the apostles. And we're, we're glad to have a record of it that we can kind of go over slowly.
just kind of think about it and uh, see what we can learn. So hopefully you, like I, have learned some good lessons from John 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before You, our, our God again and our King, and we pray that You'd protect us, that if it is the case that Satan desires to sift us, that You will put a hedge of protection about us and about our church, individually and corporately. Lord, we don't want to fall into sin. We want to recognize that we must be humble, that temptation surrounds, troubles abound. But Lord, You are mighty to save from all of that. And we thank You for it. Strengthen us, I pray, and and do indeed strengthen our brethren. We're missing a number of our brethren this evening, Lord, and we pray that they're safe and sound, safe in their bodies and sound in their spirits, we might say, drawing close to You. For those that are shut in, Lord, those that are watching online uh, from near or far, we pray Your special blessing on them. We pray too that You might uh, just guide us in this coming week to live for You and to have some opportunities to share the Gospel. I I suspect I prayed like that last week and and You gave me some opportunities. I pray You'd give these folks some as well. Thank You for the visitors today, for uh, five people who came new. We are grateful, Lord, for them and pray Your rich blessing in their lives as well. In Jesus' name, Amen.